0: Continue to make our way through this letter from Paul to the Corinthian church. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll be reading the first 18 verses of 1 Corinthians 9. As you're turning there, may I suggest to you that we're going to experience today one of the great benefits of the consecutive preaching of God's Word that is, preaching book by book, chapter by chapter. I say that because if we were to open randomly to this uh, chapter this morning, we might easily be led to believe uh, by what we read that Paul is primarily concerned about remuneration for pastors, or to put it crudely, paying the preacher. But it doesn't. This uh, chapter is an integral part of Paul's well-reasoned and argued letter to the Corinthian church. Last time, that we, last time we saw that there was a problem in Corinth, a problem over eating meat that had been offered to idols. I say the eating of that meat in the presence of Christians, of new Christians probably and primarily, and people for whom that presented a great offense, Christians eating meat that had been offered to idols. And so a stumbling block of temptation, an opportunity for them to violate their conscience, and so according to the Scripture... Sin. To those who had no problem with eating meat, such uh, weaker brothers in the church were little more than nuisances and bothers. What did they care about these weaker conscience Christians? I want my meat. I have this knowledge that it's okay for me to eat meat, even if it's been idol, you know, uh, offered to idols. And what difference does it make? So fooey on them was the approach they were taking. They are being selfish, weren't they? And that attitude was, as we've seen, right at the rock by, it was what bedeviled the Corinthian church. They broke into factions, we saw earlier. Why? Because they were selfish. They were judging and, and criticizing Paul because they were so thoroughly selfish. Sexual immorality and arrogance, even lawsuits between believers, relationships breaking down, marriages falling apart. Why? Because they were selfish, selfish, selfish. That was the problem in Corinth. In chapter 8, we'll see it more in the letter as we continue on, but in chapter 8 in particular, in which Paul urged them to turn from their selfishness and to loving each other. That's now how chapter 9 fits in. It's a continuation of that argument. Paul is continuing his appeal from chapter 8, in this case using himself as an example for the Corinthians. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we ask for the grace to receive your truth and receiving it, to live by it. For we have not truly received your word until it has worked in us until we've been molded and shaped by it. And we want more and more for that to be the case. So, Father, send thy spirit, we pray, to do a great work in us now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 9, beginning at verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord, as Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I, who have no right to refrain from working for a living, who serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written, in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rites, nor am I writing these things to secure such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. No one ever had to teach me to be selfish. It came naturally. No one ever had to make me sensitive to the fact that I have my rights. These That sensitivity also came naturally. Since the fall, we come equipped with these, don't we? They're factory-installed. But I do remember when I began to come into something of an understanding of this bent of ours, it was about the time I was enjoying the Peanuts Christmas special. Remember how dejected Charlie Brown was searching through the kaleidoscope of commercialized Christmas for the true meaning of Christmas. And on his way to direct a Christmas play at the school auditorium, he was stopped by the sound of his sweet little sister Sally's voice. I've been looking for you, big brother. Will you please write a letter to Santa for me? Charlie stops and dutifully takes the pencil and pad from her And, Okay, shoot, he says. Dear Santa, I've been extra good this year, so I have a long list of presents that I want. Please note the size and color of each item and send as many as possible. If it seems too complicated, make it easy on yourself. Just send money. How about tens and 20s? Oh, even my baby sister, Charlie laments. He covers his ears and runs away. Unperturbed, Sally reasons aloud. All I want is to have what's coming to me. All I want is my fair share. Was a shining moment in Charles Schulz's brilliant grasp, the demonstration of his brilliant grasp of human nature, wasn't it? When he, that he demonstrated so often through his child characters. What Sally expressed so crassly is the self-indulgence rampant in the human race, which sadly was also rearing its ugly head here in Corinth. And just as sadly, and perhaps more so, continues to manifest itself all too often in the church today, well, let's just say it, in us. You know, <clears throat> we're all about our rights. Maybe that's because we're American Christians in America. And we have this especially large blind spot for that reason, this, for, for this our failing, because Americans, we're, we're so cognizant of our rights. We have rights. We've got a a whole bill of them, as a matter of fact. We're confident that we have many unalienable rights, including but not limited to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. These are the kind of sentiments that lie right at the root of our nation's founding, woven right into the fabric of our lives. Well, Paul had rights, too, didn't he? He had some things coming to him. And what we have in these verses reads like a bill of rights, doesn't it? For one, he had the right to be considered and be treated as an apostle, for he truly was just as much as any apostle, as any of the rest of them. He, he had seen Jesus. He had all the qualifications. He doesn't list them all here, but of, of an apostle. He'd been commissioned by Christ as an apostle. Did the Corinthians doubt it? Apparently they were, they were giving him a very hard time, refusing to receive his leadership, questioning his authority, slandering their founding leader, the one who had planted their church and brought them the gospel in the first place. This is what makes their attacks on Paul so, so thoroughly ironic and backwards. What was perhaps the greatest evidence of his apostleship that they could see? They themselves! They were the seal of his apostleship, the demonstration of the genuineness of his calling as an apostle and office. He may not have been considered an apostle by other people in the ancient world, but how could he be considered anything else? By these people, the very people whom he had brought together and to Christ as an apostle. There was second a right to food and drink. Causes us maybe to think back to the last chapter, or more about this basic provision. Third, he had a right, like any of the apostles, to bring along a believing wife, as did the other other apostles. He mentions Peter by name, Cephas he's called in verse 5, probably because he had some sort of a special hold on at least a faction of people in Corinth, right, as we remember from earlier in the book, and the brothers of Jesus, men like James and Jude, other children uh... of mary and joseph's by the way we won't take it up here but how many of the false teachings about uh... about um, celibacy of uh... priests or the uh... Or about mary here and um, about jesus having brothers or my all sorts of things are blown to bits here but Four, he had a right not to support himself with an outside job. In other words, to be remunerated for his gospel services. Verse 6, here he camps, and we're going to camp for a few minutes, firing off one after another after another, why he had this right to their support, their financial support. He starts with an argument from common sense. Verse seven: who serves as a soldier at its own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? What nonsense it would be for a soldier to have to pay for his own uniforms or, or his own transportation to the battlefield, right? Who can imagine a person planting a vineyard but not eating any of the grapes that grow on the vines that he tends so carefully? A goat herder must certainly have drunk milk from the herd who would think, who would imagine to argue that he shouldn't. So that's the first of at least four lines of argument, depending on how you count them, that Paul offers for supporting uh, of, uh, the, right, the right of the one who brings the gospel to earn his living from the gospel. A second argument he makes from Scripture. He appeals to a law from Deuteronomy 25, the law of Moses that required that an ox must be, not be muzzled while treading out the grain. In other words, as the ox made his way around the grindstone, turning it, if that was the type of crushing of grain that was going on or, or pulling the sledge across the floor, he was allowed to enjoy some of that grain, the ox was, himself. Apparently, it was tempting for some millers to scrape every penny's worth of grain from the floor or from the wheel and, and keeping the ox, therefore, from enjoying any of it by muzzling the ox. Now We could add an entire aside here, too, about God's view of animals and the way that Christians, of all people in the world, how Christians ought to be the leaders in teaching and propagating and demonstrating the proper care of animals. We might even call them in this context animal rights. That's why Wilberforce, William Wilberforce, could argue nearly as passionately and work uh, as tirelessly uh, not only to end the slave trade as he did and gave his life to doing, the slave trade which treated people like Animals but also to lead a great campaign in Britain for the just treatment of animals in a day when all manner of Grotesque I'll spare you the details Animal brutality could be witnessed in the streets of London That's not so much Paul's interest here of course as it is the application of the divine intention of this law The application, I say, to human beings, Christian ministers in particular. Those who labor in the gospel ought to be supported by the recipients of that gospel. Should be remunerated by those who are the beneficiaries of their ministerial labors. What form that remuneration takes, he doesn't exactly specify. Here it might be money, of course. It might also be goods. You know that a friend of mine is now and has been uh, for years and years the pastor down the street here at Dawson Baptist Church. And I'm pretty confident that he is remunerated in, in uh, money. But it's not always been the case at Dawson Baptist Church. You might remember a former member of ours, now a member of the church triumphant, uh, Opal Vernig. She went to that church as a little girl when so many of the people showed up for church in horse-drawn wagons and their preacher would come he could only come once a month on his circuit and the people in philpot were so poor they couldn't pay him in cash so they paid him in chickens and uh in a dinner that day and in and chickens to go to provide for his his family well however remunerated those people of Dawson Baptist Church early on and the, and the people in in Corinth, certainly, ought to have understood that the preacher must uh, be paid. He must be remunerated. He must be provided for. You know, that's still the way, by the way, that uh, many pastors are provided for in Africa. They're paid in chicken and uh, chickens and livestock. Whatever it is, the the principle hangs true that those who have sown spiritual things among a people should reap material things from them. Paul goes on to consider and to bolster this rite of his with arguments from religious precedent. In verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Now, whether Paul's pointing to pagan temples in and around Corinth or the temple of God in Jerusalem, we know certainly the priests were provided for there and, and from the altar... I'm not entirely certain. I don't know that it makes any difference. It's just as sound a principle either way. What was true of the temple priests is just as true. Mutatus mutandus, the necessary changes being made for the Christian minister of the gospel. And then, not to put too fine a point on it, Paul cinches the argument by quoting the Lord himself, verse 14: commanded those who proclaim the gospel that they should get their living by the gospel. Uh, where Paul finds that direct commandment from Jesus. I'm not entirely sure. Maybe it was uh, declared directly to Paul by Christ and isn't uh, recorded elsewhere in the Scripture, or maybe he's referring to the fact that Jesus sent out his disciples as apostles into the world and expecting that their needs were to be met by those to whom they ministered. You can remember that in passages like uh, Luke 10. Well, Paul had his rights in a true sense. He really did have his, not in the, not in the avaricious, self-seeking way that little sister Sally simply wanted what was coming to her, but in the matter of true justice and righteousness and lawfulness. Paul knew this and he could enumerate his rights and he could defend, obviously, his rights very ably. Rights, rights, rights. Paul had many rights and claimed None. That's what's so striking about this passage. After using every ounce, all the powers of his ep- apostolic acumen to enumerate, to demonstrate, to substantiate his rightful claims, his rightful rights, he turns right around and waves them, resigns them all Verse 12, nevertheless, we've not made use of this right. And again, verse 15, I have made no use of any of these rights. I'd rather die. And just in case anyone in Corinth should think that he's he's trying through the back door to to get something from them, he adds this, "I'm, I'm not writing these things to secure your provision. I don't want it. No, this is not Paul making demands for what he has coming to him, for his fair share. This is Paul surrendering what he has coming to him, his fair share. But what could possess him? What could possess him to surrender his rights? Just one thing, and one thing only. The gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ. Verse 12, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. The members of the Corinthian church were actually harassing and discrediting Paul precisely because he refused their money. He refused their support, their, their pay. Maybe, they, maybe this galled them because they couldn't keep him under their thumb, because he owed them nothing. That's certainly a possibility, the understanding of some commentators of this text but the point is paul was not into his rights paul was into paul believed in responsibilities not in rights and responsibilities and in one particular responsibility woe to me if i do not preach the gospel verse 16 that was his responsibility the spread of the gospel that was his responsibility and it trumped all of his rights and grasping after what he rightfully had coming to him. You see, it's one of the Christians, it's one of your greatest rights, Christian, to surrender your rights. To surrender your rights for higher, greater purposes, for a greater goal, to see that the gospel is spread through your circle of influence, and thereby to the world. Now, you may, be, uh, you may not be a preacher, or, or you may be, uh, that may be your calling or not, but, but all of us hold a position here, my brothers and sisters, of some sort. You're all someone's boss, or someone's employee, or someone's sibling, or someone's son, or daughter, or mother, or father, and, and you have rights. Good grief, you know, at the lifting of the phone receiver where we live. We can have a policeman... Standing right there in moments to defend our rights. You may fairly expect to be treated with some degree of respect by those under your charge and by those who are in charge over you. You have a right to be paid at a level commensurate with your education and your training and your labor. Your government tells you that you have unalienable rights. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. But what would happen... What would happen if, 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 if in the world Christians became more concerned about their gospel responsibility if not to preach it per se, to live it before the watching world, to spread it as opportunity presents itself in the world and to adorn it in the church in our life together with our lives what if, what if Christians, rather than demanding their rights, relinquished them for the sake of the gospel, serving one another, giving one another in love to each other, not taking, submitting, not subordinating, serving others, not looking to be served by others. My, my, how the gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ would spread just as it had to Corinth in the beginning, though the recipients of it there had somehow lost the sense of gospel centeredness and gospel drivenness for themselves and had somehow become driven once again by their own concerns for self, for number one, for numero uno, for me, for my rights. Your flock, it may be that you don't get the respect that you deserve. Your rights, whether real or self perceived, may be downright trampled by others, even by other Christians. I know they have from time to time. Learn with Paul to say, I'm not interested in my rights. My rights are not my concern. My responsibilities are. What reward? would attend such a life as that. Paul's reward was that he could preach the gospel unhindered, unfettered by any concern for pleasing the people to whom he preached it, as it truly is free. Verse 18, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. I'll say it again, it is one of the Christian's greatest rights to surrender his or her rights, to surrender rights in favor of responsibility and, and the simple, sweet reward that obedience to God is in and of itself. It truly is. As I was studying this text, my eyes fell providentially providentially on, on last month's issue of The Voice of the Martyrs magazine, newsletter, sitting on the floor in my study, it uh, is given to the subject of Syria's remnant. One of the articles is about a man uh, they call Fadi Saba. Several years ago, Mr. Saba was primarily focused on himself, on his career. But his priorities shifted to God's kingdom, and when they did, he became very, very serious, about the Christian faith. So when the civil war erupted in Syria, Fadi was already prepared to begin serving Syrian refugees and showing the love of Jesus to them. The first time Fadi Saba encountered Islamic extremists in northern Lebanon, they tried to kill him. On July 18, 2013, As he traveled home from a day of ministry work, four gunmen shot at Fadi's car, causing him to lose control and flip his vehicle, and down a steep hillside they went. He went. Fadi suffered a displaced uh, shoulder, dislocated shoulder and head injury, briefly lost consciousness. The men who had shot him uh, scrambled down the hillside to his car, tore up his Bible's stole his gospel tracts, and left him for dead. Fadi says, all I saw when I regained consciousness was the emergency responders trying to open the door of my car. That uh, the attack occurred in a part of northern Lebanon where Fadi provides aid to Syrian refugees and regularly shares the gospel with them. Working among Islamic extremists is simply a part of Fadi's job of his life. Fadi had a second confrontation with Islamists on November 19, 2014, as he returned from an area in the north occupied by the self-proclaimed Islamic State, ISIS, al-Nusra Front, and other Islamic groups. The area is often bombed by the Syrian army. As a Fadi drove through the dangerous region, two gunmen on a motorcycle sped past his car And after driving a little further, he saw the men standing at the sides of the road near the motorcycle with guns drawn and aimed at his vehicle. As he drove up, they opened fire. I kept driving, and one bullet hit the car and, and broke the glass. He said, these people knew I was there. They were waiting for me. Fadi made it to a military checkpoint where soldiers who knew him told him that the people in the region were... We're planning to kidnap him. You're not allowed to go back there anymore, the soldier told him. But uh, Fadi, husband, by the way, and father of two children, continues to this day to go everywhere that Christ leads him. He believes that the gospel is too valuable not to share, even in areas controlled by Islamists. He uses, as I'm reading from the article, he uses his background and reputation in the community to enter dangerous areas, meeting with Syrian believers, and more than 30 house groups on both sides of the Lebanon-Syria border, distributing food aid in border communities and sharing the gospel with Muslims through the building of relationships and storytelling. Knowing that it is dangerous to share the gospel in this region and that Islamist groups have sophisticated methods of tracking their enemies... Fadi leaves his cell phone at home before he travels. The risk of being tracked is greater, he figures, than the inconvenience and the risk of not being able to communicate. Now, husbands and wives, you think about that for a minute. He's been shot at several times by Syrians. He bears the scars of bullet wounds on his abdomen and on his thigh. And he continues on. Now, Mr. Saba has rights. He's Lebanese. He has rights. By the way, he has constitutionally guaranteed rights. As a Christian in Lebanon, he could easily claim for himself the right of peaceful life, of a a peaceful life, of a safe life. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, whatever you want to say. He has the right to, to keep his wife and his children safe. So do his converts, by the way. Converts like Mehri, who was baptized two years ago this week and was subsequently beaten by Muslims in front of his wife, Miriam, and his 12-year-old daughter and his 8-year-old son. As the blows fell one after another on him, he cried out to his family, Don't leave Jesus. In fact, those were his last words before they took a knife and cut his throat. These brothers and sisters of ours are not interested in standing on their rights. In fact, it is their right, unless it's their right, to go places where they have no rights. Or even the police are telling them, please don't go. Or even the police and the soldiers are concerned for their safety. On the right to relinquish their rights, they stand firm. Their greatest right that they exercise is the right to proclaim the gospel. You have rights too, my brothers and sisters. We have rights. Good grief. We of all people in the world know best that we have rights where are you standing are you standing on your rights or on your responsibilities where is your true reward as long as we're talking about it when Fadi shared the story of Mehdi's faith with a police official in the hope that he would investigate the murder the officer shut his office door. Now Fadi was concerned. (laughs) He feared he might have gotten himself into big trouble by telling the police, but to his astonishment, that police officer sat down in his desk. and He began to weep, to cry. Shame on us, nominal Christians, said the police officer to Fadi. The name of Christ is wasted on us. May the name of Christ not be wasted on us, on you and on me, dear flock. And it will not be if we gladly exercise our right to surrender all our rights to deny ourselves, to take up the cross, and to follow him. Amen.